Okay, so it's, okay, microphone's on. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for coming along. I was afraid that after this morning's message, there would be nobody here this evening, but uh, it is a joy to uh, be able to uh, talk to um, us as families because we had a, a, a baby dedication service this morning, and, uh, and it's, it's good to be able to, um, to change a little bit when we, uh, when we have those sorts of services. So this evening, I want to talk uh, about... Um, some words that are contained in uh, the section in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, which uh, is part of what uh, Randy was able to read to us that was found in uh, chapter 6. And the section that I really want to concentrate on, but we just need to look at a few other verses beforehand, is uh, verse 19 of chapter 6, which says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Jesus is very specific there. He says, Do not. He doesn't say try not to. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as I was reading those uh, verses in my own uh, personal reading, it just dawned on me that that is absolutely true. Where our heart is, that's where our treasure is. But so often we discover that uh, our heart is not in the place that it should be, and therefore the treasure that we have is not the treasure that we should have. And so this evening, we want to begin to just look at this very briefly. But Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6 make up what we know as the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. At least it's the majority of it. We know that Jesus is talking to the disciples because when you turn back to chapter 5 and verse 1, you see this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry there in Galilee. And uh, we discover that uh, the multitudes have been coming, the crowds have been coming um, to hear him, they've been bringing sick people, those that needed to be healed, to come and to be healed by him. The end of uh, chapter 4 tells us uh, they brought to him all people, uh, all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan. And then in verse 5, we see that Jesus takes time and he goes up onto the mountainside to talk to the disciples. And he then proceeds to bring a message or a sermon to them, which covers a huge range of different topics. And as you begin to look at this message and you think of your own life and you think to yourself, wow, these are just the things that I need. Because at the end of the day, we are disciples if we have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So perhaps the message that we're looking at, or that Jesus uh, certainly spoke here, you could say, uh, was for those who were saved. It was for believers rather than those who were not believers. But having looked at this and begun to understand, we see very clearly that what he was speaking to the disciples is very pertinent and relevant to all of us. But it is possible that the Sermon on the Mount is also the most misunderstood sermon that Jesus ever preached. Um, some would say that it is indeed God's plan of salvation. 
if we want to get to heaven, if you want that card that allows you to get into heaven, if I could put it that way, then what you need to do is to obey everything that Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. And if you believe or if you behave or if you uh, uh, obey everything that Jesus has said, then surely at the end of your life, you'll be welcomed into heaven. And so some people would describe it that it is the list of rules to obey, that it's God's plan of salvation. Other people call it the charter for world peace. And I don't know if you realize this, but all too often when we hear of uh, those that talk about world peace, those who talk about the um, world church, the unity of the world church, they'll often quote from this section of scripture and try and point out that it is as we live out the Beatitudes that we discover that we will live a life which is worthy to those that, um, uh, that, that we have. So that's a couple of things. There's a third group of people who say that this message doesn't apply to today, but rather to the future. And I would like to suggest to you that the key to understanding this is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, I believe, gives us an understanding perhaps of what we're talking about here. So verse 20 says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll read that again. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, the key to understanding the section of scripture that we have before us is what is true righteousness? What is Jesus talking about when he talks of our righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, of course, they were the group of people that had got it all right. They were the ones, if you want to look at it this way, who had discovered what they believed was the right thing, the right way to live their life. And they did this by an understanding that you had to hold to the law. You needed to make sure that you didn't slip up once. You had to make sure that everything you did was right. But the problem was, was that the righteousness they had was one that was generated in themselves from the way that they were living out the law. It was not from a change of their heart and their life. The religious leaders had an artificial, external righteousness. And I want to say to you that the biggest uh, concern that I see, probably in the area in which we live particularly, is the fact that it is very easy to deceive yourself into thinking that as long as I look all right on the outside, as long as I have an outward righteousness, as long as people see me and that I'm doing the right things, that I'm saying the right things, I go to the right things, I do the right things, as long as I look good, then surely the inside has got to somehow have a correlation to what the outside looks like and it will then cover me, it will then make it all okay for me. And that was the righteousness that the Pharisees and that the Sadducees had. In fact, you couldn't fault them when it came to detail. They knew it all. They had studied uh, both the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures but also all the other teachings that the Jewish people had brought alongside. And I don't know if you realize this, but there was hundreds of rules 
that the Jews had brought in that were not from the word of God. And they expected you to live by those. And if you lived by them, then everything would be fine. Somebody was watching all the time because that's the way the system worked. And if you stepped wrong, you were brought up short and you were able to be put right as somebody told you how to live. The Pharisees were concerned about the minute details of conduct. But the big problem they had was that they rejected the matter of character. So they were concerned about conduct, but when it came to character, they failed to understand. And we have to be so careful on exactly this point our conduct might be pretty good, as we've said before. You know, we could be pretty good house-trained Christians here. You know, we, we don't make a terrible mess everywhere we go. We're well house-trained. But what's your character like? What's my character like? Has your character been changed because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus lives in you? Is the mind of Christ the mind that is developing within you? Is the way you live your life, the character, the things that you say, the way you exhibit, the way you think about those in your family, the person next door, the guy down the street, the people you have to work with? What's your conduct like? It's dependent upon character. And so we have to see that what Jesus is talking about here. You see, friends, conduct flows out of character. And Jesus' sermon explains that it is our character that has to be right. Believers are to be the salt and the light of the world, we're told, in chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Again, if you have your Bible, keep them open at uh, at Matthew chapters 5 and 6. So 13 and 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a bushel, under a basket rather but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So believers are to be different. Believers are to make a difference in the world. So a simple question there would be, do you make any difference? Do people actually know that when you walk into the room, you make a difference? And if you do make a difference, is it the right reason? Is it the right difference that you make? Does the light of the gospel shine out of your life, out of your heart? Remember, it can only come out of you if it has been placed inside you. Or do people run in the opposite direction when they see you coming? Believers are the salt and light. And then our Lord went on and spoke about murder, isn't it? That's an interesting group of people, isn't it? Murder begins in the heart, he says. Verse 20, uh, chapter 5, 21 to 26. 
this is an important one for us, and let's just turn to that scripture. So 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rachel, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift uh, to the altar, that's the next section. So we see here that what Jesus is saying very clearly is that murder is not about putting a knife in someone's back. Murder begins in the heart. What's our character like? Our conduct flows out of our character. Adultery. Adultery begins in the heart. Verses 27 to 30. What are our eyes looking at? What are we thinking? Guys here, we look at a woman in a lustful way. It's adultery. And Jesus said, be careful. I love this one. Go to the second mile. You've already walked one mile with the person, and that was tough. And suddenly the scriptures say, walk the other mile. Oh, Lord, please, not another mile with this person. Conduct comes from character. You see, it's our character that enables us to walk the second mile. Love your enemies. Now, that one is a tough one. You know, even if it's through gritted teeth, we still love our enemies. Bless those who curse you. What's your natural instinct? <laughs> it's not to bring blessing, is it? Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who are spiteful, who use you and persecute you. Conduct, no way. But character, yes. Chapter 6 tells us to do things quietly. Jesus explains this very clearly. He says, when you pray, find somewhere quiet that you can go in and you can pray. Don't make a big show and a dance about it. He says, when you're fasting, do it quietly. Don't give the impression to other people that you're more spiritually minded than they are. Character, not conduct. And then we come to verses 19 to 34 of chapter 6. And in our culture, we tend to divide life into spiritual and material. i just read those verses again. So chapter 6, verses 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart 
well-being. So in our culture, we do tend to have this idea of a division of life. We divide it into the spiritual and into the material. But it's interesting to note that Jesus didn't actually do that. He didn't make such a division. In fact, in many of his parables, when you think about them, he actually made it clear that a right attitude towards wealth was a mark of true spirituality. The Bible isn't about living on the top of a pole for the whole of your life with hardly anything to eat and shunning everything in the world. It's not about living the life of an aesthetic. It's not about wearing some sort of, um, you know, itchy shirt <clears throat> just to make you feel bad. But Jesus was able to say that a right attitude towards wealth, for example, is the mark of true spirituality. Think of the parable of the rich farmer, Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. The Pharisees were covetous, and they used their religion to make money. In fact, it was a great way of making money for them. They could charge people for all sorts of different services that were provided, and they were able to live a good life. Friends, if you have true righteousness, the true righteousness of Christ in your life, then you will have a proper attitude towards material things. The Bible is not against having things. In fact, I think it's in chapter 6 and verse 32. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. And then we read this. For your father, your heavenly father, knows that you need all these things. So it's not a case of denying ourselves things. Yes, we don't allow things to take over and to topple us in that sense. I don't know if you've been following the account of uh, Alex Murdo um, on uh, the, the, the radio or the TV or if you've been reading it. But he's just been found guilty of murdering his wife and his son in the States. And he's been sentenced to two consecutive life sentences of 30 years. So that's 60 years in total. He's in his late 50s, 56, 57, something in that order, which means that he's unlikely to get out of prison again. This man was fabulously rich. In fact, he came from a long line of lawyers. It was a family um, a business, if you like, and his uh, grandfather, great-grandfather, and so on, right the way down to himself, were lawyers. He knew the legal system incredibly well, but he had one problem, and it was this, he loved money. And so he defrauded people out of money. He stole $9 million from different people. And then the whole house of cards begins to collapse. And he takes the life of his wife and his own son to try and cover up for what he had been doing. And so whilst he's been found guilty on the two charges of murder, he's now facing another 99 charges. All of them carry 30-year prison sentences for the way that he has stolen money and treated other people. And Jesus warned 
us against this. So the Bible's not against having things. It's not wrong to possess things. But friends, it's wrong when things possess you. Jesus warned us against the sin of living for things in this life. And perhaps the biggest reason that he warns us is is because of the inevitability of the slavery that materialism brings. How does materialism enslave us? Well, I'd suggest there are three main areas that are spoken of in this latter section of the scriptures here. First of all, they enslave the heart. When Jesus speaks of the treasure in verses 19 to 21, he concludes in verse 21 with the words, we've read them already, here they are again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The second thing that we're enslaved with is our mind. When Jesus talks about the lamp of the body in verses 22 and 23, he's talking about our minds. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then there's this, this chilling part of the, uh, the second part of verse 23. It says, and you might think, does this make sense? If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how can light be darkness? And the verse ends up by saying, how great is that darkness? So the second thing that becomes enslaved is our minds. And then the third one, I believe, that we see here is verse 24, the fact that our will, when Jesus talks about serving two masters, this is what he's talking about, our will. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's a choice. So we very briefly look at the heart. If the heart loves material things and puts earthly gain above heavenly investment, then the result can only be a tragic loss. The man or woman that puts earthly things ahead of spiritual things will lose their hearts to them. So what's your priority? What's the number one thing in your life? And here's the thing. It happens almost without you realizing it. Almost imperceptibly. The world becomes enticing. And eventually you become one by it. And when that happens, you grow cold toward the gospel. You go cold towards Christ. Christ is of no concern because you are now a slave to the world. I, 
I don't know if you realize this, but scams only work because of our love for money. When you see a sign or something that says you can be rich, do this. It's not common sense. It's not your brain that clicks in for you to be part of that. It's because your heart has been won over. And all you want is the bunny. What does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? It means to use all that we have for the glory of God. And sometimes it might be that you have almost nothing. But if you use it for the glory of God, you have everything. It means that we will avoid the world and its trappings. We will avoid the sin that so often comes along. And Satan speaks to us and whispers to us. But if we've laid up our treasure in heaven, then we've avoided the world and its trappings. It means measuring your life by the true riches of the kingdom of heaven, not the temporary riches of this world. Friends, I say it again, it all comes down to character. If your character is that of one of God's children then you will indeed lay up treasure in heaven where wrath, uh, rust and moth cannot destroy. So the question is, how do we become a child of God? And the answer to that is remarkably simple. It simply means that we repent and change our mind towards God. It means that we depend upon him. It means we put our trust in him. It means that we recognize that we are sinners. It means that we understand that however hard we try, we will never be able to save ourselves. And it means that we see Jesus. We meet with him. It means that we understood what we talked about this morning as we met around that table for breaking of bread service. It means that we remember what Jesus has done for us because... His body was broken and his blood was shed for us. And when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything changes. Our character changes. Yes, some of us are slow. I accept that. And some of us have many lessons to learn along the way. But if we're prepared to submit to him, then our character will change. And the person that people don't like can become the person that people want to be with. All because God is working within us. Material wealth not only enslaves the heart, but it enslaves the mind. God's word often uses the eyes to represent the attitude of the mind. If the eye is properly focused on the light, the body can function properly as it moves around because we need light to be able to see where we're walking. You know, if you're groping around in a dark room, get your phone out and put the light on. You've got to see where you're going. Have you ever stubbed your toe in the dark? <laughs> Does it hurt? It's excruciating. And you think that you've got this vision of the, the, the layout of your house and smack, turn and go straight into a wall. 
And in our lives, it's the same. If our mind is full of darkness, we cannot help but stumble around. If the eye is properly focused on the light, the body can function properly as it moves around and we can avoid disaster. We can avoid those things which are so easily uh, going to entangle us, the sins that catch hold of us. Because the light of the gospel enables us to see them. Yes, we might choose to carry on and do them. But we need the light. If the light is out of focus or you're seeing double, it results in unsteady movements. So my brother Sam, he's younger than me, and uh, he was born with a, a, an eyesight condition called keratonitis, something along those lines. Sounds roughly like that. And what it means is, is that his eyeballs are not round. They're elongated. Okay? Now, you can't see it at a distance. But over his, uh, as he's got older, it's got worse. And I was driving with him on one occasion. It was, uh, we'd been away to a, um, a trade fair somewhere. And uh, he suddenly said to me, he said, so at the word for twilight, the bit, bit between light and dark in England, is dumpsy. So it's getting dumpsy out, okay? And uh, that's the time when it's not dark and it's not light in the same way. And he suddenly said to me, he said, um, so we're driving down the M5, which is a main north-south highway. And he said, my eyes, I now see uh, one set of headlights there and then over here another set of headlights. And he said, I've just got to work out which are the correct ones. Okay? And it's just the way that his eyes would work so that, that you would see the light, not during the day, but the light would be there and then you'd immediately get the second light, the halo, if you like, created there. Now, he'd always said to me, I, I've able to work out which one's which. But I thought to myself, in, the, in the, the split second of having to make a decision, what happens if another set of headlights suddenly appear? He so he doesn't drive anymore at night now. <laughs> but you know, this is what it's like for us. Because there are times in our lives when we think we've got the light. We've allowed what we think the scriptures are talking about. Our Lord says it so clearly, doesn't he? He says, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness... How great is that darkness? We mustn't deceive ourselves. And we will do that when we allow the things of this world to come in and dictate how we live. I want the true light in my life. And that true light comes from the Savior living within me. And there are times even so that I say, it's all right, Lord, I can cope. I've got this one. And I fall flat on my face. Because it wasn't the true light. Outlook determines outcome. And finally, 
we come to the fact that materialism can enslave the will. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Friends, it's true. You can't serve two masters. And yet there's this problem that so many people today think they can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And they can think to themselves, it's fabulous, I can have the best of both. You know, I can get close to the fire, but not too close to get burnt. And I can still keep my hand out. We play a game at Jam sometimes called British Bulldog, and the kids have to run from one side to the other, and somebody in the middle has to catch them. It's always exciting when the Stellan lads play, okay? Because it's like a couple of three, three bulldozers just charging across, all right? And if you're the kid, in the, we always choose the smallest one to go in the middle so that everyone stands a chance of running backwards and forwards. Don't let this put you off coming to jam, by the way, okay? And if one of the kids is down, you can call, form a chain. And if you touch them, they can come back. They've been saved. They've been rescued. And that's almost the way that we see it sometimes. That as long as I keep my hand stretched out, Toward God, I can, I can be in the world, but I'm still there. And it doesn't work because God is jealous. He wants all of you, <coughs> everything of you. And he wants you there, close to his heart. One Timothy six verse nine. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. If God grants riches, and we use them for His glory, then those riches are a blessing. But if we will to get rich, and we live with that outlook we will pay a great price for those riches. So, does conduct on its own save us? No. But conduct that comes from character, and that character is because we're a child of God, then we're safe in God's hands. And the change comes from being born again. That's the exciting thing. With a new character, we will start to store up treasure in heaven where no thief can come and steal it. And so this evening, I graciously remind you, where are you storing your treasure? Is it here in this world? Or is it in heaven? You see, God is always ready to hear you call to him. 
In fact, he's waiting for you to call to him if you have not done so already. He desires that you call to him. He's commanded that you should call to him. And he's given us his word because he says, I'm speaking to you now. And you can put up all the excuses you wish to. I don't hear God. He never speaks to me. Yes, he does. Are you listening is the question. Respond to him. Call to him. Repent of your sin. Trust in the Savior. And then go back and read Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. And suddenly all those beatitudes and everything that Jesus spoke about will become crystal clear. What you'd not understood before, you will see and you will understand. You will now understand how it is to love somebody who hates you. And you can only do that because your character has been changed by your relationship with God. Call to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn to him. Change your mind. And he will wait.